Hey, this is the Building for Digital Equity podcast, where we talk to people working to expand internet access, address affordability, teach digital skills, or distribute affordable devices. We talk with those working on the front lines of giving everyone everywhere the opportunity to participate fully in the digital world. Whether in rural areas or cities, our guests here are doing the often unglamorous jobs in places that have been left behind. This show comes to you from the Community Broadband Networks team at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, where we have long produced the Community Broadband Bits podcast and the Connect This Show. Building for Digital Equity features short interviews from Emma Gautier, Christopher Mitchell, and me, Sean Gonzalez, talking to people at the events we are attending to highlight the interesting work and inspirational stories to get internet access to everyone. Now, Let's see who we have today. I'm here with Laura Breeden, a member of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance board and legend, I want to say. <laughs> that's that's a, a little overblown, but yeah, I, I am here. I did. And I have been involved for a long time. And, and I'll just say quickly, I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And we just came from the introduction of the opening moments of net inclusion here in San Antonio. And you were there at the beginning. I was. I was there at the beginning of NDIA, which um, occurred appropriately in a bar um, at a conference in Washington, D.C., where Angela had been attending the conference along with several other people who are here today. Um, This was in 2015. The Federal Communications Commission was anticipating changes in the Lifeline program, which subsidizes telephone service traditionally. Um, And there was a question about whether Lifeline should be accessible for people who wanted broadband or um, as close as they could get to broadband. And so we were talking in the bar as we sipped our cocktails Mm -hmm. about how we could influence these proceedings at the Federal Communications Commission. And Angela wanted to um, collect a group, which is very Angela, and was exactly the right thing to do. And I said, and you know, these origin stories, You can't believe everything about it because at the time you didn't know you were in an origin story. Right. And our our mind plays tricks on us, too. (laughs) It does. (laughs) But I said, if we're going to all the trouble to build a coalition, let's not have it be a one shot deal. So um, the germ of the idea of NDIA was born then. And I don't think we could have anticipated at that time all of the steps that would lead us to where we were in 2021 when the the Jobs Act passed. Um, but all of a sudden, or it seemed very sudden, there was a lot of money and a lot of attention and a really serious national focus on digital equity and what it meant. And we had played a really important role in that. Let's talk for a second about how it went, because I feel like when one is starting an organization like this, I feel like there's I, there's probably more than this, but I, immediately I think of there's two paths. One is people think, let's get this organization started. Once we get all the resources lined up, we get some grants and we can go at it. And the other is, 
let's just do what we can as fast as we can. And when we get money, we'll spend it as wisely as we can. But we're going to get good things happening today. And it seems like that's the path that you all took. That was the path. And that is completely due to the fact that Angela and Bill were willing to put sweat equity into the organization. And I, I was too. I was doing behind the scenes work to make sure that we had the appropriate infrastructure um, legally and um, financially so that um, if we ever did get any money, um, we would be able to use it wisely. So um, again, it was the volunteer effort at first on everyone's part and we certainly had no idea that we were going to end up as an organization with over a thousand affiliates and the kind of national presence that we have now. Now, we were just in that room and uh, they did the same thing I've seen them do before, which is super sharp. The opening plenary where everyone's together asked how many people were at their first event. And I was expecting two thirds or maybe three quarters of the people to raise their hands. To me, it looked more like 85 or 90 percent of the people. Mm -hmm. and that's that's remarkable. Yes. Well, when you drop money on a problem, it becomes a lot more visible. <laughs> so um, when the Jobs Act passed and it I think Angela said it was two point seven five billion dollars. This is out of sixty five billion, I think. So, you know, sixty five billion for broadband. And part of that was this digital inclusion funding right this was i think effectively money from the digital equity act right which which ndia was really instrumental in working with correct um uh, people in congress to to get that moving and then that got incorporated and adjusted a little bit into that bill I exactly think. got got wrapped into the big bill and um yes we worked really closely with people in patty murray's office um, who were fantastic to work with, absolutely mm -hmm. wonderful. And Patty herself was, I should call her Senator um, Murray. Senator Murray was um, very committed and, and very engaged in all of this. So um, we had put quite a bit of effort. I mean, I remember trips to Capitol Hill and lots of paper because the Digital Equity Act was... Um, was pretty comprehensive and basically it was passed into law as part of the the um, IIJA. I can never remember what the right, first the I is. Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, I think. That I think it's Infrastructure good. Investment. Okay. We'll that just go with good. that. And yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> the uh, What's important the is that... The other thing that happened, Chris, that yeah. I want to mention is that um, before the pandemic, the problem of digital inclusion was an invisible problem. So, um, like a lot of other things, food insecurity, it, um, the people who, who make the news, the people who make the rules, the people who are most visible um, in the media, often have no idea um, what it's like to live in poverty, to not have a reliable car, whatever. A digital inclusion was in that category. And is. the pandemic, well, the pandemic really blew the lid off so all of a sudden. I really, I want to, I wanna, I'm interrupting you. I want you to finish that. I want to come back and, and I want to push you a little bit on that and see if we've made as much progress as we like to think we have. Because I worry that we haven't. Well, okay. So um, relative to where we were five years ago, mm -hmm. I mean, I remember 
when I was still working at NTIA. So this was before 2015, walking into a senator's office to help brief him on uh, what we were doing at NTIA at that time. And we knew from data that, um, I can't remember who collected it, but that 30% of the people in his state had no internet access. Mm -hmm. He didn't know that. Okay. We came in. Yeah. And now that kind of information is really everywhere. Um, Agreed. Yep. So. So the, the reason I say that and I push back a little bit is I think if the if we had a horrible stroke of luck once again and the virus mutated such that it was more dangerous to young people and they closed down schools again. I think I think estimates were that we had like 12, 13 million kids that didn't have home Internet access back in 2020. I, I, I worry, yeah, I worry that that we maybe have adjust uh, fixed that for 20, 25 percent of those kids. I think most of those kids, if they were sent home tomorrow, don't go home to home Internet access. Well, it's interesting. It, the people that are most motivated to get Internet access at home. Mm -hmm. um, are parents of young children. Right. So I would imagine that those are the people who are seeking out the ACP program and mm -hmm. who are looking for refurbished computers or low-cost devices um, because they're motivated to do it. They've made, they know the connection between education and having those digital literacy um, skills. And I do think the problem is that much more visible. Whether mm -hmm. we've solved the problem, I mean, that's why 800 people are here right. figuring out how to spend two and a half billion dollars. Right. Which I still feel like, I mean, this is where, again, I feel like you could say there might be two paths. And I think you've definitely taken the path of, of let's focus on what's going well and what we can do better, which is great. There is a, a path, I feel like, of despair and frustration that this country has spent, you know, well over 100 billion dollars, mostly ineffectively to expand rural internet access. Something that I'm sure you agree with me is crucial that we make sure everyone has high quality internet access. And there are a lot of people in poor and rural areas who are quite low income. But we know that there's like four times as many people in cities who have not gotten it. We finally have $2.5 billion. These people here are gonna be spending it wisely, I hope, really you know, making a big difference. But it is a bit frustrating that we still don't get nearly enough resources to adjust. And that's what I'm saying is I don't want to like I don't have anything against what all these people are doing. And I think they're all doing really good work. But I'm just frustrated how under resourced they are, because I've I've spent 10 years listening to elected officials saying we now understand this is so important <laughs> and, and not seeing the budgets that line up to it. And so two point five billion dollars, Senator Patty Murray's leadership really got that through. But like. It's the tip of the iceberg for what I think is needed to actually resolve this issue, particularly in urban areas. And so I don't know if that resonates with you at all or if you think I'm just being a Debbie Downer here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris, no, you're not a Debbie Downer. And I, I don't think despair is in order. I, when I started working on this um, in the early 90s, uh, no one could really imagine what you could use the internet for because it yes. was also new and it was just at the point where the internet was becoming commercialized and so providing examples and just showing people i mean i remember as a new employee at the department of commerce and this is in 1994 going to um the office where they manage the the grants it was like the the 
<laughs> benevolent overlords. Um, no, it was the CPAs and the people who had to look at whether whether grant money was being spent effectively. Mm-hmm. They didn't have online access to the um, the accounting standards, and the accounting standards change, and you have to know what they are. And they were online, but here's an office at the U.S. Department of Commerce, a huge agency that had no online access. Mm-hmm. Um, in the inspector general's office, they had a network, but it was so they could use a printer. Right. They had no idea what what was out there. And this is this is in the agency, the organization where I was working at the time. So the level of awareness has changed so profoundly, and the internet and online access have become such a I mean, we take it for granted now that it's there and we can use it. And so I, I don't know. I, I feel positive about it all because I think that there's been so much change and the level of commitment of people who are engaged, and I count you among those mm-hmm. people, um, is extraordinary. It's really extraordinary. I mean, this is a calling for people. Um, and so I'm very optimistic about where it's going to go. Yeah, I, I don't think there's really any argument about that. I just wanted to lay out some <laughs> some of the contrary. Would the you like to that... talk more about your despair? <laughs> <laughs> it's so dark in here, Laura. <laughs> so dark. <laughs> Let me ask you one other thing, because we're trying to keep these interviews a little bit more brief than, than the ones I've done before. And there's a million things I can ask you about. But since you were there for the commercialization of the Internet, I'm just curious if you can tell us a little bit about that, because I think some of the younger people look at that and they think that was a horrible mistake. And as someone who I spent 15 years worrying about too much corporate power, but I think the commercialization of the Internet was really good. And I'm really glad that it happened kind of the way it did, at least in the early years. I wasn't there for it, though. I've only read about it. So so how do you react to that if someone says, oh, they never should have commercialized the Internet, which I think comes out of a bit of ignorance as to what that means. But you were there for it. Well, I think the when I look back on that time, and this is the, the very early 90s, um, it was becoming obvious that this thing that had been created in a university environment and mostly funded by the government was bigger than all of us. And sure. when I say all of us, I mean the, you know, the computer science research community. Um, And what I'd observed in the late 80s is that once you had a network that was um, open source and interoperable, the the network standards, anybody could build for that network. And with commercialization came a very rapid evolution, for the most part in a positive direction. Now, we could have a long conversation about the way the Federal Communication Commission approaches the telephone companies or the other providers and and the many failings mm-hmm. <laughs> of that system right um, but I think in terms of applications and routers and um, network management software all the things that came with commercialization that were positive um, it really moved the evolution along and made it possible then to 
developed all kinds of things on top of it. I also feel like it was in inevitable. It was given our history and culture as a country, it was, there was no other way. Right. And I, I think that anarchic origin is important. The ability to let anyone build on it is important. And that's why I'm, I'm so excited about the way NDIA was developed. I think your stewardship, several other people, um, many of whom we, we couldn't name just because there's many people who have contributed. The National Digital Inclusion Alliance could have gone a lot of different directions. I think this is like, I mean, to, to steal something from the, the show community, um, you know, we're, we're not in the darkest timeline. We are one of the brighter timelines because mm -hmm. this is such a vibrant community that NDIA has, has built, has nurtured, is stewarding, whatever you want to use it for. It's really exciting. There's so many great people here and they're focused on the right things. So it's a wonderful time to be working on this field, I feel like. Great. Well, thank you for that. And um, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. We thank you for listening. You can find a bunch of our other podcasts at ilsr.org slash podcasts. Since this is a new show, I'd like to ask a favor. Please give us a rating wherever you found it, especially at Apple Podcasts. Share it with friends. You can even embed episodes on your own site. Please let us know what you think by writing us at podcast at communitynets.org. Finally, We'd like to thank josephmckay.com for the song On the Verge. <laughs>